How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we start our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can uh, use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Scripture teaches that when we sin, we, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And so we need to recover fellowship. And that's a simple procedure for the believer. And that is to simply admit or acknowledge our sins in the privacy of our soul to God the Father. And we are instantly restored to fellowship and restored to our spiritual walk. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we thank you so much we have this privilege and opportunity to study your word. That is your word that refreshes our soul. It is your word that that teaches us that you have provided everything we need for life and godliness. It is your word that guides and directs our thinking so that we can uh, live above our circumstances and realize that you have made an ultimate provision for us, and this is all revealed in your word. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would help us to focus, to concentrate, to put aside the cares and worries of the day that we may be able to uh, understand more fully your perfect plan of salvation. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying salvation and all of its dimensions and all of its complexities on uh, Wednesday night. This is our fifth class, and we're going to just review the basic situation with uh, salvation, why man needs to be saved. The basic problem is sin. When Adam disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it erected a barrier between God and man so that man could no longer and can no longer have a relationship with God. It had numerous uh, consequences, this sin barrier, and we've outlined six of those consequences. The first is the basic problem of sin. Scripture teaches, teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and in Our study of that, we saw that the words for sin in both the Hebrew and Greek have the idea of missing a mark, especially the Hebrew word chata has the idea of missing a mark, missing a target, falling short of a standard. Man falls short of the perfect righteousness of God, and there's nothing that man can do to raise himself up on his own to meet that perfect standard. Then there is the fact of a penalty of sin. The fact of the penalty of sin, because God is righteous, he, when his standard is violated, his justice has a penalty. There is a penalty for sin, and that penalty is spiritual death, and that comes under another category. Here we're just looking at the fact or reality of the penalty, that somehow the penalty, whatever it is, has to be paid. The third problem is the character of God itself. This is the Godward aspect 
of salvation. Some aspects of salvation are directed toward man, the creature. Other aspects are directed toward God. This is the Godward aspect and deals with the fact that before he can save the creature, the disobedient, rebellious creature, God has to uh, have his, his righteous standard has to be satisfied so that his justice is able to bless man. The third problem is one that is inherent in man now, and that is that each human being is born spiritually dead. There is a uh, man is, was originally created trichotomous. That means he had three parts, body, soul, and spirit. The Bible teaches that when Adam sinned, he lost that human spirit. He was no longer able to understand the things of God. He was no longer able to relate to God. He was no longer in harmony with God because he'd lost an essential element of his makeup. And we went through the passages describing, for example, in Jude 19, that the that man, unsaved man, is called a sukikos man from the Greek word based on the word suke for soul, soulish man, as opposed to the believer in second I mean first Corinthians two fourteen, the believer is called a pneumaticos man, one who has a spirit. This is clearly defined in the uh, in Jude verse nineteen, which states that the sukikos man does not have a spirit. So there is the problem of spiritual death and fifth, there is the problem of a lack of righteousness. God is perfect righteousness and cannot have fellowship with a creature who lacks his perfect righteousness. It is impossible for God to have fellowship with someone who is minus R. And then finally, because Adam was the representative head, theology describes him as the federal head of the human race. Because he is the federal head, our position is in Adam. Scripture teaches that in Adam all die. And because he was our federal head, what God says, whether you believe it or not, is that if any of us were in that same situation, we would have done exactly the same thing. It might have taken you a second quicker to eat that fruit or it might have taken you a second longer. But any of us, all of us, would have done the same thing. So we are. he was our representative. And when God is going to save us, that salvation has to be multidimensional. That is one of the reasons that I have always had trouble understanding people who think that they can somehow lose their salvation. It always seems to me they have an inadequate view of sin and a shallow concept of salvation. A salvation that handles this complex sin problem is one that has to be in itself also complex, so complex and so detailed that in effect, it is impossible for it to ever be reversed. There has to be a foundational change, not only in man, but in his relationship to God before he can be saved. The last time, we began to look at the solution. The solution to the sin problem begins with the first brick in the barrier, and that is the sin brick. Now, I want you to notice that I have structured that barrier in a logical sequence. First, there is the problem of sin, which is inherent to man. He now has a constitutional defect. Every human being is born with a constitutional flaw 
that requires a penalty from a righteous and just God. That, in turn, creates that third problem, which is God's own character. It further goes into the fact or the result of the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death, and then the problem of man's lack of righteousness, and then concludes with his position in Adam. So there's a logical sequence to these these bricks in the barrier. In the same way, there's a logical sequence to the solution provided at the cross. The sin problem is resolved through the doctrine of unlimited atonement. And last time we looked at that under three headings. The first heading is the doctrine of atonement, or excuse me, the heading of substitution. The second was the heading of atonement. And the third was the doctrine of unlimited atonement. And I just want to review briefly a few things on the doctrine of unlimited atonement, go over the four points I gave you last time, and then hit the fifth point, which I did not get to last time. The first point is that the question is, did Christ die for only the elect, as some teach, or did he die for all? The position that Christ died only for the elect is the position sometimes referred to as five-point Calvinism. Some people might call it hyper-Calvinism. Other people call it Dordian Calvinism. It is the position that is typical of what is called Reformed churches. You may not know that term, Reformed churches, but that describes those Protestant churches that trace their lineage back to John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland. And Reformed churches usually are um, uh, influenced the development of later uh, Presbyterian churches, congregational churches, and um, those have further split into various other denominations. But they all trace their, their roots back to Calvinism. Now, I do not believe John Calvin held to limited atonement. I believe that there's clear indication from several passages in his commentaries that he held to unlimited atonement, and there's a tremendous amount of debate among scholars on that particular point. But his successor was a man named Theodore Beza, and Beza was a man who was uh, probably had a legal mind or an engineering mind and wanted to make every wanted to, to make everything within the Calvin's theology consistent, and so he basically did what what is a danger of systematic theology, and that is to rip it loose from its anchor in the text. And so all of a sudden, once you've developed all your conclusions, you start trying to make everything fit into a logical and consistent whole. And while there are many things that may seem to be logically consistent, if you can't show it from the Scriptures, then it doesn't really fit. And it's a problem of imposing human logic on a divine system. So Calvinism holds to the position that, uh, in its five-point expression, holds to the position that Christ died only for the elect. After Calvin died, and later on in the 15th century into the 16th century, there was a um, theologian in France at a seminary in Salmour. And this is information that I'm going to give you. A lot of seminary graduates don't even know this, which shows that seminaries don't train men like they used to. Salmour was a theological seminary, and there was a man by the name of Moises Amiro. And Amiro 
held Calvin in high esteem, but he did not believe that Calvin taught what had been solidified at the Synod of Dort in, in uh, uh, 16. Uh, 14, and which is where they defined limited atonement. And he taught a position that came to be called hypothetical atonement. Hypothetical atonement, and it is more popularly known as unlimited atonement. That is that Christ's death is not limited for only the elect, but that he died for all mankind. That is the teaching of, of Amiro. And the problem was the way he expressed it in terms of, of a hypothetical, hypothetical atonement. So uh, when we look at the second point, which is to understand, state, clearly state the doctrine, Christ died for all without exception and without, without distinction. That's the point of the doctrine. Christ died for every human being without exception and without distinction. Without exception means without exception in terms of Greek or Jew, and without uh, distinction means every every class of human being. He died for every single human being that ever existed. The third problem is what, the third point was the problem of the meaning of substitution. Was it real or potential? Uh, the limited atonement crowd says it was real and only for those who are saved. The Amaraldian position, which is which is the position of most non-Calvinist. This is the position that's taken by people like, for example, like Lewis Berry Chafer, who founded Dallas Seminary. Most of my professors at Dallas Seminary held this position. It's a position you'll find at Moody Bible Institute and most, most schools. This is a dominant position. I think it's got a flaw, and most people don't think it through, and that's what the fifth point is to deal with. It's a not it, hypothetical creates a problem. How can a substitution be, be a substitution and be hypothetical. We'll get to that in a minute. So the first answer was that limited atonement said the substitution was real, but it was only for those who were saved. How could it be real for those who weren't saved? If it's a real substitution, they all ought to be saved. That's their point. The Amaraldian position was obviously everyone is not saved. Only some are saved, those who believe. So it's hypothetical. It's potential. It's only Christ's substitute is only real for the individual if he accepts that payment, if he trusts Christ as Savior. That is the position uh, known as Amaraldianism. And then the third position, which is the one that you have been taught here in this congregation, is that it is a real substitution, that Jesus Christ actually paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. But you see, that really doesn't solve all of the problem. Because the penalty of sin is only one aspect of, of the sin problem. Christ died to pay the penalty of sin, but if you still have, or if you're still spiritually dead, even though that penalty is actually paid, if you're still spiritually dead, if you still lack perfect righteousness, if you're still in Adam, then that salvation, then you're not saved. You you still have a basis for divine judgment because you're not regenerate, because you don't possess perfect righteousness, and because you're still in Adam. So even though Christ's death on the cross actually solved the first three problems, the sin problem, the penalty of sin problem, and the character of God problem, because 
an individual does not trust in Christ as their Savior and, and it hasn't been applied, then they're not regenerate, they do not have perfect righteousness, and their position is still in Adam. And that's the basis for their con- con- condemnation, as we'll see in a minute. The fourth point was to look at various scriptures, and the scriptures were established. For example, you have um, Hebrews 2.9, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once for all. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves. And then 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He gave himself as a ransom for all. That's the doctrine we'll look at in a minute, redemption. He gave himself as a ransom for all. The preposition there is huper, indicating substitution. He gave himself as a, subst- as a ransom, as a substitute for all, the testimony born at the proper time. 1 Timothy 4.10, I think, is one of the stronger verses to support unlimited atonement. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our confident expectation on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers." Second Peter 2.1 is also a strong verse. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And there's our concept of redemption again, the master who bought them. It's a real purchase, but they deny that master, so that means they're not saved. He actually bought them. First John 2.2, 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So that, again, indicates uh, an atonement that is universal in scope. Now, point number five. Point number five is that the problem with unlimited atonement is that it is often stated in such a way that it conflicts with the concept of real substitution. I remember running into this when I was a student at Dallas, sitting down with a guy, and he said, if Christ actually died for the unbeliever, then when that unbeliever ends up in the lake of fire, and someone says, for what are you, why are you here? It's going to say, because I'm paying for my sins. Then Christ didn't die for those sins. And so that's a backdoor way of, uh, that's not much different from limited atonement. Christ did not actually pay for those sins. And turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. The great white throne judgment. Revelation 20 verse 11. This comes after the millennial kingdom. We are now in the church age. A church age will be followed by the rapture of the church. And then a seven-year period known as the great tribulation, culminating in the battle of Armageddon. Then Jesus Christ returns and saves humanity from self-destruction at the second coming and then inaugurates his kingdom, which is known as the Messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, or the 1,000-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. At the end of that, there will be a judgment of all of the unsaved. Then John says, Then I saw a great white throne, 
and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. See, it doesn't say they were judged according to their sins. Christ paid the penalty for sins on the cross. They're judged according to their works. Do their works add up to perfect righteousness? That's the issue at the great white throne judgment. It is not that they are judged for sin because they, if they reject the payment, it's still paid. If you and I are to, were to go out to dinner at one of those nice restaurants they have over there at Mohegan Sun, and we were to have a great steak dinner, and the bill would come to, I don't know, two or $300. And if I paid the tab, and you said, no, no, I'm not going to accept it, but I've had it put on my credit card, and they took it back and ran it through the machine, and I signed it, you wouldn't have any say about it. It's paid for. It, isn't that real? I paid for you. That's the concept. Now, you may not want to accept it, but it's still paid for. Now, that's the point of a real substitution. If it's only potential, then you still have the option for paying for it, and it really wasn't paid for to begin with. That's the problem with stating with the classic way that unlimited atonement is stated, is you don't have a real substitution, and therefore you end up, in effect, having people judged for their sins that really weren't paid for, on the cross, because what determines whether they're paid for on the cross is their decision, not God's decision. Yet God has to pay for those, has to pour out all those sins on the cross. In fact, that's the point in First uh, Peter three eighteen. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. In other words, he died once for all sin. If you come along in 2003 and you say, I'm not going to accept that payment, then, oh, well, oops, we've got to go back in time and rip it off the cross. Or you decide that you're going to accept that payment, now God's going to go back in time and dump it. Well, you can appeal to foreknowledge one way or the other, but the bottom line is you still end up with a limited Atonement, even if you backdoor it. Now, don't go out of here and say, well, somebody believes in a classic view of, un, of uh, unlimited atonement like Chafer or Walford really didn't understand it. No, that is a classic expression. They believe Christ died for everybody. It's just the fine-tuning of these uh, expressions sometimes gets uh, takes time to develop over the years. And so uh, that is a classic view of unlimited atonement. It is still unlimited atonement. I just think that if you push it to its logical conclusion, you're going to have a problem. Okay, back to our uh, barrier chart. We've solved the sin problem with unlimited atonement, but now we have to solve the penalty. There is a legal penalty assessed by God. At this point, we're not concerned with the solution of the penalty in and of itself, we're concerned with the legal payment of the penalty. And that is covered in the doctrine of redemption. Expiation should not be there. I thought I dumped that earlier. Uh, expiation shouldn't be there. Expiation really comes under the next category of propitiation. This should be simply uh, redemption here. Redemption solves the penalty of sin. So let's look at the doctrine of redemption. We didn't cover this on Sunday morning first hour because 
I knew I would get to it tonight, but the last verse that we studied on Sunday morning was the statement, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And the term there, bought with a price, is the word that indicates redemption, the purchase of something. Now, to understand redemption, we have to look at the key words. It's always important to do word studies and look at the original, the words used in the original language so that we can come to understand a concept such as redemption. In the Hebrew, the, there are two words used. The first is pada, and the second is uh, ga'al, to redeem. Pada and ga'al, or go'el, for redemption. Pada emphasizes the payment of a price to free from some state, such as slavery or death or destruction. It always emphasizes the payment of a price. So the thrust of the concept is freedom. Whenever you think of redemption, the word that ought to come into your mind is payment. Redemption means payment. Somebody paid the price that paid the penalty for sin. This word is used in passages such as Exodus 13. Verse 13 we read, But every offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. That is, when a donkey gave birth, one of the things they were to do under the law was to offer a sacrifice back to God as gratitude for the fact that God had provided additional livestock. You shall redeem with a lamb. You shall buy it back. You shall then... um, But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. They were to pay a sacrifice price when God had given them either livestock or increase in their family. Verse 15, It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of of my sons I redeem. There was a purchase made, and that was to the sacrifice of a lamb without spot or blemish. Of course, that lamb without spot or blemish was a foreshadowing. All of this was designed to teach through through pictures the fact that our very life uh, comes from God and to teach that 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 physical life was a... Uh, was analogous to spiritual life and that we could have spiritual life only through the redemptive work of a, of a Savior in the future. Exodus 21, 8 states, If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master, this is talking about a, a female slave, if she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. In other words, she as a slave can be purchased and set free from her slavery. Job 33:28 uses the word in terms of freedom from death. He has redeemed, he being God, has redeemed or purchased my soul from going to the pit. He's free from death, and my life shall see the light. And then it's used again in Psalm 44:26. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of thy loving kindness. And there we're given a clue that redemption is related to the loving kindness of God. Loving kindness is the word that is used to translate the Hebrew word chesed, meaning God's faithful, loyal love. And that is key, a key element in God's integrity. 
Now, the second word that the Jews used to talk about redemption was the word goel for redemption or gaal for redeemer. That would be spelled, uh, goel is spelled G-O apostrophe E-L because you have a I in in there. It's, it's a sort of a glottal stop consonant. And, uh, or the verb gaal, G-A-A-L, G-A apostrophe A-L means redemption, and usually the word ga'al or go'el emphasized a kinsman redeemer. Those of you who went through the study of Ruth with me remember that. That's where we learned about redemption through that picture that God provides in the Old Testament, the kinsman redeemer. And the key idea emphasized in ga'al is the idea of protection, that the go'el is the blood relative who is to provide for and protect uh, blood relatives. So that those two words are the key words in the Hebrew for redemption. When we get into the New Testament, there's there's basically two two words. I'm going to draw write them up on the overhead, and then we'll we'll look at their various forms. The first word. Well, I'm going to put this word up here. In the Greek, this is the word luo. And luo means to loose. And it's just a general word that, that can be used in a number of different contexts. But it is the etymological root and cognate of the verb lutrao. L-U-T-R-O-O. And lutrao has as its basic meaning the payment of a ransom price. Now, when you pay a ransom price, you loose or free the uh, one who has been kidnapped or the one who is being held. That is, and there's a, a whole word group. There are six different words or five different words based on lutrao that are used for redemption. The second group of Greek words are based on the root verb uh, agarazzo, A-G-A-R-A-Z, agarazzo. That's got an O here. A-G-O-R-A-Z-O. A-G-O-R-A-Z-O. From the Greek, from the root agora. You've heard of agoraphobes. Somebody's afraid to go outside. Somebody's afraid to go in the marketplace. That's what the agora was. This is the open-air marketplace where you would go and pick up your fruits and vegetables and go to the butcher and buy all of your foods. And so it emphasizes the idea of purchasing in the marketplace and specifically came to emphasize purchasing uh, a slave in the marketplace, purchasing from the slave market. And so in the Scriptures, the term comes to emphasize purchasing uh, from the slave market of sin. Now, let's look at some of these words. So those are the two broad uh, roots, and let's look at the individual words. The first one is antilutron. Antilutron, actually, A-N-T-I is the prefix, uh, A-N-T-I-L-U-T-R-O-N. Anti is the prefix that has to do with substitution. Remember, we looked at that last time. We looked at substitution. There are two Greek prepositions, anti and huper. Those are your prepositions for substitution. So antilutron emphasizes the payment, a substitutionary payment of a price. So this emphasizes the payment for the freedom of a slave 
or a prisoner in order to free them. It's usually translated ransom and has the idea of purchasing freedom from slavery. It's used in 1 Timothy 2.6, where we just, which we just read earlier, that Christ uh, ransomed us or freed all from slave. The ransom was paid, and there's the, with the preposition who pair indicating substitution. When you have a preposition such as who pair used plus the verb form uh, or the noun form antilutron, there's a double emphasis there on substitution. That is a, that emphasizing the fact that Christ died in our place. Second word is apolutrosis. Apolutrosis. And it's got the, the, uh, Greek preposition apo, apa, attached to it indicating, um, source and, and emphasizes the deliverance procured by the ransom. They are freed from something. So it's emphasizing the release of a slave upon the receipt of ransom. Apolutrosis emphasizes the release of that slave when the price is paid. You find this word in Romans 3.24. That's a key passage because, as we'll see, Romans 3.24 uh, talks about redemption. Romans 3.23 talks about the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.25 talks about propitiation, and Romans 3.26 talks about justification. So we'll have to spend a little time in that passage to understand the dynamics of salvation. Everything is pulled together in that passage by the Apostle Paul. But apolutrosis is used in Romans 3.24, Romans 8.23, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Ephesians 1.7 and 14, and Ephesians 4.30. Then we have the basic noun, lutron, which just refers to the payment of a ransom price in order to set free. This is the core noun, the payment of a ransom in order to set free. It refers to the price paid to let something loose. D, we have the verb lutrao. Lutrao means to pay the ransom price, to deliver by paying the price, paying the ransom, to liberate. In the middle voice, it also means to redeem, and this is what we find in the passage in 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19. 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19 is a key verse for um, redemption. There we read, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Knowing, that's a causal participle, because you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your empty manner of life received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. That takes us right back to the Old Testament concept of that lamb sacrifice. This is what John was referring to when he saw Jesus come and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that one phrase, the Lamb of God, he, he packages together all of those Old Testament sacrifices and shows that they're all fulfilled in that one person of Jesus Christ. This is the redemption price. We're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, the blood of Christ. Then E, our fifth word related to 
lutron is lutrosis, another form of the word meaning redemption, deliverance, or freedom. Lutrosis, meaning redemption, deliverance, and freedom. And then we have the noun for redeemer, lutrotase. Lutrotase, redeemer or deliver, this is the one who pays for the freedom. In Acts 7.35, it's used to refer to Moses as the redeemer of evil. Now, when we look at these six words, all based on Lutron, what we discover is that God pays a price. When you think of redemption, think of paying a price. It is for the purpose of deliverance, liberation, freedom. But what we learn is we are not set free autonomously. Man is not just free to do whatever he wants to. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, we are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in our body. We are now, we've changed owners. And only under the ownership of God can we have real freedom. This is a reversal of what happened at the fall when Adam executed his decision to be independent of God. He really became a slave of sin, and it's only when man gets back under the authority of God that he has real freedom again. So Lutron and its cognates all emphasize the payment of a price, the payment of a ransom, and freedom. Then the last uh, two words that we'll look at relate to agorazo, and that is the purchase of something in the marketplace. The verb agorazo means to buy, to purchase in the marketplace. It's used 31 times in the Greek New Testament. And Christ paid the penalty to, paid the price to purchase those who are slaves to sin. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23. And then the last Greek word used in this collection is ex agorazo. Ex agorazo, which means to purchase out from. That's that preposition ex, out of or out from. To purchase out from the slave market, to completely and totally liberate a slave from the slave market. And it's used in Galatians 3.13 and Galatians 4.5. And under, to understand redemption, we must go back to the Old Testament. This is point two. Point one just had to do with terminology. Point number two takes us back to the picture of redemption which is given in the Old Testament. And the primary picture in the Old Testament is the Exodus event. I want you to notice how all of the Bible hangs together. What the New Testament says about our salvation is based upon Old Testament events, and in this case, as in many others, Old Testament miracles. If you want to throw out miracles, you want to throw out the parting of the Red Sea, you want to throw out uh, Israel's slavery in Egypt for over 400 years, then you undercut the foundation of the New Testament. This is a problem that that people uh, who come along and they question a six-day creation in Genesis chapter 1, they don't realize that what they're doing is undercutting everything that is said about sin and salvation in the New Testament. Everything in Genesis 1 through 11 either occurred exactly as it is literally portrayed to have occurred, or there is no salvation in the New Testament because there's no sin, there's no need for a Savior, there's no need for an incarnation. It it destroys everything. That's why it's such a battlefield. That's why creation isn't something that is just a nice concept, but 
Let's not get distracted by it. Let's just focus on the cross. Again and again, I've showed you that when Paul goes into a pagan culture, he goes to Ephesus, he goes to uh, many other places, he starts by talking about not Christ, but he starts by talking about God who created the heavens and the earth. Creation is foundational to understanding salvation. So the Exodus is as uh, foundational to understanding redemption. It is the Old Testament model of redemption and involved the payment of a price and the rescue of Israel for slavery. So if you look at the history of Israel, the history of the nation itself is a picture of what goes on in the individual life of the believer. You have the calling of the nation with Abraham. You have the redemption of the nation with Moses at the Exodus. And then the nation, the sanctification of the nation or their spiritual growth, both in terms of success and failure, is pictured in the subsequent books. Their success is pictured in Joshua. Their failure is pictured in Judges. And the history of Israel in the Old Testament is a picture of what goes on in the believer's soul in the New Testament. So redemption takes place under Moses when God frees them from slavery in Egypt. Slavery in Egypt is equivalent to our slavery to sin. And just as Israel need to be, needed to be delivered and purchased out from the slave market in Egypt, so we need to be purchased from the slave market of sin. Exodus 6, 6 states, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you. And the word there is a synonym for salvation. It's the hiphio perfect of not sal, to deliver, to tear out, to pull out, to remove or withdraw. And in some passages, it's used as a synonym for the, the word words used for salvation. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now, this isn't talking about salvation redemption. It's talking about physical deliverance from the slavery in, in, in Egypt. Exodus 15, 13 is another passage. In thy loving kindness, Moses says, thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed in thy loving kindness. So here we bring in that a key element in redemption is going to be this chesed love, C-H-E-S-E-D, this faithful, loyal, covenant love of God. So this is crucial in developing our understanding of the overall dynamics of salvation. We won't get there tonight but we will get there next time, and we'll start pulling some of these things together. How did God redeem Israel? He purchased them through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Now, I want you to remember, last time I talked about the fact that there had been three different types or four different views of the atonement, three different views of the atonement. You had the uh, uh, development in the early ages of uh, the church with origin and the ransom to Satan view of the atonement. And then Anselm came along a few centuries later 
and Anselm said, no, that's ransom to Satan. We don't, God did not owe Satan anything. We were not enslaved by Satan. We were enslaved by sin. God did not have to pay a, re- a redemption price to Satan. And he came fairly close to a substitutionary view of the atonement. And then there was the, um, moral view of Anselm, I mean, of, of, excuse me, of Abelard. And then later there was the uh, governmental view of Grotius, and uh, those were all heretical views of the atonement. So in this picture in Israel, who, what, what pays the price for their redemption? What paid the price for the redemption was the sacrifice of the lamb. But who did it get paid to? It didn't get paid to Pharaoh. It was paid because it was to satisfy God's justice. And that's where you see redemption start to bleed over into the concept of propitiation, which we'll look at next time. The price was symbolic in that it looked forward to and represented the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. And redemption is emphasized again and again in the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy 7, 8, because the Lord loved you. And kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, that would be the covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Because the Lord loved you. So once again we see a cause, a motive for salvation, for redemption being the love of God. Deuteronomy 9.26, And I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy thy people, even thine inheritance, whom thou hast redeemed or purchased through thy greatness, whom thou hast brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Deuteronomy 13.5, But that a prophet or that a dreamer of dreamers shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Deuteronomy 15.5, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you today. Deuteronomy 21.8, Forgive thy people Israel whom thou hast redeemed, O Lord. So again and again, the emphasis is on God as the Redeemer, the one who purchased their freedom in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 24.18, You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you. From there, notice the basis for this redemption is God's character, His love. That is the cause of God's salvation. That's the same thing we're going to see in the New Testament. That for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, it's the Old Testament event of the Exodus that provides the great illustration of redemption. But the picture of the Redeemer comes from that word ga'al and its use in Ruth. The picture of the Redeemer comes from the concept of the, of the go'el, the kinsman Redeemer in Ruth. Five characteristics of the kinsman Redeemer apply to Jesus Christ. This is point number three. Five characteristics of the kinsman Redeemer apply to Jesus Christ. First of all, The Redeemer was to be a blood relative of the one who was to redeem. The Redeemer had to be a blood relative of the one who was to redeem. Leviticus 25.48, Deuteronomy 25.5, and Ruth 3.9. Luke 25.48, Deuteronomy 25.5, and Ruth 3.9. The Redeemer must be willing to redeem. 
The Redeemer must be willing to redeem. He would take it on voluntarily. In that same way, Christ voluntarily left heaven to pay the price for our sins. In relationship to the first point, that's why Christ had to be incarnate as a true human being to fulfill that blood relative uh, image in the kinsman redeemer. Uh, the second characteristic is that he must be willing to redeem. Christ voluntarily left heaven to pay the price for our sin, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Third, the redeemer must be able to redeem. See, a creature could not die for other creatures. A sinful creature could not die for other creatures. It was necessary for Christ, uh, who was sinless, without sin, impeccable, to pay the price of our redemption. Acts 20, 28, 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. Fourth, the Redeemer must be free himself from the calamity from which he is freeing the object of redemption. The Redeemer himself must be free from the calamity which has befallen the object of redemption, Leviticus 25:49. He cannot also be enslaved to sin. Christ himself was free from sin, so he could redeem us from sin, 2 Corinthians 5:21 and Hebrews 4:15. Fifth, the Redeemer must act to pay the redemption price. He must do something. He must act to pay the redemption price. Genesis 48:16. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and may my name live on in them. The angel acted for, to redeem them. Exodus 6.6, 6, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you. There has to be an action. Something has to take place. Exodus 15.13, uh, In thy loving kindness thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed. Point number four. In Isaiah 40-66, to 66, Yahweh is pictured as the perfect goel for Israel. Yahweh's picture is a perfect go-well for Israel. For example, in Isaiah 41.14, God says, Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. It's not based on who Israel was, because they were a failure, but it was based on the character of God. Another verse is Isaiah 43:14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And these verses all use that word, Goel. Your Redeemer, for your sake I have sent to Babylon, and I will bring them down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into ships in which they, into the ships in which they rejoice. And Isaiah 48:17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, it pictures God as the perfect Goel, the perfect kinsman uh, Redeemer. Number of other passages I'll just skip through. You can look up later. Uh, Isaiah 59:19 and Isaiah 59:20 and 21 all emphasize the uh, uh, these various aspects of God's character. God operates as a uh, compassionate kinsman. He's a guardian of justice for Israel. And he is going to bring security and protection to them. This would be Isaiah 41:14, Isaiah 43:1 and 14, and Isaiah 44:6 and 22. In Isaiah 44:6, God says, "Thus says the Lord, 
the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. There is no God beside me. God controls in the midst of all the chaos. Then in Jeremiah 31.11, we see that there is a connection between the act of the goel and the verb for redemption, pada. For the Lord has ransomed, pada. The Lord has ransomed, purchased Jacob and redeemed him, Gaal, from the hand of him who was stronger than he. So here we see the emphasis that it is God who is the perfect redeemer and he redeems in a way that is consistent with his justice and his righteousness. There's a number of promises in the Old Testament. This is point number five. Various promises in the Old Testament regarding the protection of the Lord, our Redeemer. Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Notice God's defense of the believer is related to his redemptive activity. Psalm 69:18. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. Psalm 72:14. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. Psalm 74:2. Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased or redeemed. Thou hast purchased of old, which thou hast redeemed to be the tribe of thine inheritance. Psalm 77:15. Thou hast by thy power redeem thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Psalm 78:35, and they remembered their, that God was their rock and the Most High God, their Redeemer. Psalm 103:4, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. All of these are the verses that emphasize God's redemptive work and his care for the nation Israel. Now that brings us to point six. Redemption describes salvation from the viewpoint of a ransom paid for our salvation. It is manward. It pays the penalty for our sins. Point number seven, redemption portrays the human race as slaves born into a slave market of sin. It pictures the human race as slaves in a slave market of sin. So point eight, redemption describes the purchase of the sin slave slave's freedom. It describes the purchase of the sin slave's freedom. Point number nine, the purchase payment is the blood of Christ. So seven, eight, and nine, break it down. Redemption pictures the human race as slaves born in the slave market. It describes the purchase of their freedom. And point nine, the payment price is the blood of Christ. The Goel emphasizes the necessity of the hypostatic union. Now, there are nine results of redemption. This is point number 10, I believe. Point number uh, 11. Point number 10 is the goel. That, that concept emphasizes the necessity of the hypostatic union that Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity. Now, we have nine results of, deli- of redemption. First, we're delivered from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13 and 4, 4 through 6. We're delivered from the curse of the law. Man is no longer under the law. Jesus was the end of the law. The Mosaic law no longer applies, but the Mosaic law simply 
uh, was an example or instantiation of those codes. There's nothing in the Mosaic Law that's unique to the Mosaic Law. It was it was murder was wrong before the Mosaic Law. Adultery was wrong before the Mosaic Law. So the Mosaic Law was for Israel only, and the cross redeems us from the curse of the law. Second, we have the forgiveness of sin. Isaiah 44:22. Ephesians 1.7, because the price has been paid, God can forgive us. Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.14, Hebrews 9.15. Remember, there's two categories of forgiveness. There's category one forgiveness that takes place at the cross, and category two forgiveness that takes place each time we confess our sins. Category two forgiveness is based on category one forgiveness. Third, redemption is the basis for our justification. Because the sins are paid for, God is then free to be able to justify us, Romans 3:24. Redemption is the basis of our justification, Romans 3:24 and fourth. Redemption is the basis of our sanctification, Ephesians 5:25 to 27. Because the price has been paid and we are freed from the slave market of sin, we are now able to be sanctified. Redemption is also, this is the fifth point, fifth result, redemption is the basis for the internal inheritance of believers, Hebrews 9.15. Six, redemption is the basis for the strategic victory of Jesus Christ in the angelic conflict, Colossians 2.14-15 and Hebrews 2.14-15. G, Redemption of the soul in salvation results in redemption of the body in resurrection. Because the soul has been redeemed at salvation, the body will be redeemed in resurrection. Ephesians 1.14, Romans 8.23, and Ephesians 4.30. Redemption of the soul leads to redemption in the body. Ephesians 1.14, Romans 8.23, and Ephesians 4.30. The eighth result is that redemption views salvation from the standpoint of the complete payment of our sins. It views salvation from the standpoint of the complete payment of our sins. So the issue is now to believe in Christ for eternal life. The issue is to believe in Christ for eternal life because the sins have actually been paid for. And then the ninth result, since the believer has been bought by Christ, we now belong to him and he is our new master. 1 Corinthians 6.20. That covers the doctrine of redemption, which solves the problem of the penalty of sin. Next, we have to solve the problem of the character of God, and that is the doctrine of propitiation, which we will cover in two weeks after I come back from California. So we've covered the first two, and next time, hopefully, we will cover the next two, propitiation and regeneration with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We're reminded that if you could do so much for us at salvation, that there is nothing in life that is too great for your grace. We're reminded of what the Apostle Paul said, that that um, that if he did, you did so much for us at salvation, that you can also do more for us in the spiritual life. That because of our salvation, because of all that Christ did, how much more will you also freely give us? Father, we pray that you would remind us of your grace and that you have done the greatest thing possible for us in delivering us from sin and so you can handle any and every problem in our life. 
We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.